Well, you have a handout today, so take a look at that. Um, we're going to be looking at the inscriptions, primarily of the Psalms uh, today, and four in particular. Don't think I've ever done this before, but it really struck me as we gathered together at our sing-spiration, our hymn sing. What a sweet night. There was some 45 of us gathered, and uh, we just sung our, our hearts out to the Lord. It was very, very special for Larry and Judy. Uh, I don't know that Claude and Mary would have known this. They may remember. Um, certainly Jim and Gloria didn't. I would think it might have struck a chord with uh, Sherry as well. But when I set my heart like a flint towards Christ, it changed everything. And I had to leave a lot of things behind to follow him. And that included um, my mother and my father and my sister and my brother and schools and jobs and everything as we began our Abrahamic journey of faith, I call it. And the first place that the Lord landed us was at Calvary Baptist Church in Midland, Michigan. And they were um, a large church. Um, we'd never been in a big church, really, uh, at all. You know, country church people. Um, and this um, church, when they gathered, were live on the radio. That was a very um, predominant thing in the 70s and the 80s, and every church would have their own brand, and the brand was always a gospel hymn, so that you would learn to know if you heard that gospel hymn, next was going to follow a message by, uh, you know, what, whatever, and and so we opened every service, every Sunday morning service, with a hymn, To God Be the Glory, which we opened our singspiration uh, with on Friday evening. I can never hear that song without my heart being stirred. It's almost like a, uh, a new love because the Lord had given us a new heart. And when he gives you a new heart, he gives you a new song that, that you sing gloriously to him for such a great salvation. So I was thinking about all that Friday night, and you'll see at the heading I have on the handout from a, my, here's my thinking, from him sing to worship. You see, you, you gather to sing, but we, singing is, when it's, when it's done biblically, it's worship. We're, we're, we're worshiping God. We're singing to him about his worth. And we gathered to do that. And, and what makes it worship is that when we understand theology, when we understand who God is and what he's done from his word, it turns into doxology. We can do nothing else except praise him. And that theology that turns to doxology is indeed worship, but it's a worship that drives us to missions. It's a worship that drives us to wanting the world, the nations, to be able to join us in that glad song because they've heard the gospel and they too know our Savior and coming King. And so all of that just seemed to um, come together, at least for me that night. We're actually we're doing that as a class, and of course the church wasn't joining us. So... Um, I did some readings there that night, very brief. It's more extended what we're going to look at here, though we probably won't get through it all, but you can just take it home and have it. 
but I, I wanted us to um, see Psalms 65, 66, 67, and 68. And um, they are rather unique. So start with Psalm 66. O- open them up. And I want to just start by looking at the inscription. And, and I have written there in the handout for you, for the choir director, a psalm of David, a song. Now here's the thing I want to point out. If you look at, have you got 65 open? If you look at the top there, you'll see, um, if the Bible is uh, translated into a different langu- language other than English, almost all the European languages and all of the Asian uh, languages, that inscription would actually be verse 1. Okay? Be- because it's usually considered inspired text. And, um, and so I can even remember in a time when I was translating that I got mixed up with my translator because while my Bible might have said verse 12, his Bible said verse 13 because his Bible started one verse before mine. Uh, so anyhow, my point is the inscription is important. It's, it's not just happenstance. It's there for a particular reason. And you'll know in this psalm, it says it's for the choir director. Now, we've studied psalms for a couple of years now, on and off. What does the word psalm mean? Song. So it means song. A psalm is a, is a song. It was the Hebrew song book. And so this song is is being written first and foremost for the choir director because the choir director is going to take that song and he's going to teach it to God's people to sing. Okay? I want you to notice that next it says a psalm of David. The four we're going to look at don't all say a psalm of David. They all say a psalm or a psalm of David. It's a, it's a psalm. It's a song. Most of the commentators think they were likely all written by David, but we can't be 100% sure of that. We're only sure the ones that are identified as being written by David. But what's unique is the next thing. Because it not only says it's a choir director and it's a psalm or a psalm of David, but what's the next thing it says in your Bible? A what? A psalm. So I just find that unique. And I want you to know why it's unique. Here's what it's saying. Let's just do that in English, okay? There's a song. A choir director has a song so that we can sing a song. We just it's sort of like saying song twice. There's like an extra emphasis here. We know it's a psalm, which is a song, and yet he's taking the time to say, this choir director, this psalm, this song is a song. Did I just confuse you all? Do you, do you see the extra emphasis it makes? It's sort of like double. And what's unique is that I went back and looked. This is just me. I didn't actually find this out of anything other than the thin air and and studying my Bible, which is what drove me here, which makes me a little bit nervous saying that. So I'm giving that as sort of a little little caveat here. I quickly went and looked at all the inscriptions, and if I'm right, there are only 30 inscriptions out of the 150 psalms that say a song. And 15 of those, or half of those, are all the the songs or the psalms of ascent, which the children of Israel sang as they're going to the Passover, uh, their, their various feast days as they're, they're climbing to Jerusalem. That would be 
Psalm 120 through uh, 130, 134. So if you pull them out, which are all psalms, songs, the rest of them very seldom ever say a song. And yet here we have a, a four of them right in a row that say a song, and all four of these give us um, a great deal of instruction about our singing. Looking at the handout again, a high view of the supremacy of God and the well-grounded understanding of his person causes believers to trace their blessings to his heavenly throne. Every good thing comes from God and gives us continual reason for praise, thanksgiving, worship, and an ever-growing desire that others may sing with the same exuberance and joy we do. How many good gifts come from God? Can anybody prove that to me? Is that just your opinion? Where? Somebody want to read that to me? James? Amen. James 1, is that 117? 117. James 117. Every good and perfect gift cometh down from the Father above. And, and it goes on to describe his character there, saying he never changes. He's the immutable God. This immutable God is a, is, is a good giver. He gives good gifts. And those good gifts in the Psalms, David over and over again points out and declares that we should worship him and declare his praise and, and not forget those good gifts. We should turn them in to songs and worships of praise. Well, I, I hope to sort of jot through these four psalms really quickly, not even giving you the context or laying them out, but I just want you to see how they connect with music and some things that Spurgeon said about them. I love to read Spurgeon that, that I thought were, were just a... Amazing. So, uh, again, if you look at, at Psalm 65, David introduces this song with a declaration of praise to God, and the central theme of God's praise runs all the way through this psalm. You'll see it extols God's grace, his greatness, and his goodness. And, and again, we're reminded that the more we understand God and his purpose, his person, his work, through the scriptures, the more that theology will, will be raised in, in worship and, and praise. Um, and so Spurgeon said uh, this uh, about that. This great little book is called Spurgeon and the Psalms. It was put out by Thomas Nelson. It's got one psalm. It's 150 psalms, and for each one, they take a little snapshot of his greater work, the treasure of, of David, and uh, apply it. And it has been uh, a blessing to me. So he says of this psalm, he, he, he notes that in, in this psalm in verse 3, that iniquities prevail against me. We've all been there. We all know that we fall short of the glory of God, and we sense our, our utter sinfulness apart from the grace and the glory of God. And he, he quickly 
then, David says, as for our transgressions, you, speaking of God, forgive them. How blessed is the one whom you choose to bring near to you and to dwell in your courts. God has chosen us and he's atoned for our sin. And this uh, makes us so grateful. And Spurgeon said that David, he's so persuaded of the largeness of forgiving love that it leads all the saints to sing of blessing. What a comfort that iniquities that prevailed against us do not prevail against God. They keep us away from God, but he sweeps them away from himself and us. They are too strong for us, but not for our Redeemer, who is mighty, yea, mighty to save. Jesus saves. And this, of course, is, is worthy to... Um, to be praised. And if we look at verse 12 and 13 in that psalm, it says, The pastures of the wilderness grip, the hills gird themselves with rejoicing, the meadows are clothed with flocks, and the valleys are covered with grain. They shout for joy. Yes, they sing. And um, I, I love this understanding when you, when you look at those verses. It's poetic. Um, of course the hills and the valleys and the flocks and the grain, of course they don't, they don't sing. But they could if they would. And in fact, Jesus said at his triumphal entry, the week before the world would turn against him and cry, crucify him, crucify him, when, when they were praising him as he entered uh, Jerusalem, we call it Palm Sunday, right, during that wonderful uh, time, uh, the Pharisees were rebuking Jesus and telling him to have his disciples stop praising him. And, and in Luke 19, the same idea, Jesus says, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out in praise. He is the creator God. And what's the point? What's the point of this? What is David trying to get us to see? That since inanimate objects cannot literally praise God, we who are made in God's image can lift our voices with a shout and a song to God, and we should. We should not take our singing casually. Martin Luther said the Christian ought to be a living doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Folks, when we sing, we should take it seriously and we should mean it. It should be from our heart. It shouldn't be a casual thing. It's not something that we primarily do for a break to move people from one spot to another. And I, we've all been guilty of that. Hey, we're just going to sing now. I think I'll go to the bathroom. Hello. Me too. Okay, I, I, I'm there. But, but, but I'm telling you, the singing just isn't like an add-on to the service. The, the singing is when we're worshiping our Creator from a heart of praise is a very important part of the overall worship, just like the reading of the Word of God or the giving. It's no less significant. Look at Psalm 66. It's a thanksgiving song made with shouts of praise. The psalm starts out where 65 ended, calling God's people to sing. Verse 1 and 2, shout joyfully to God all the earth. Sing the glory of his name. 
make his praise glorious. point I want you to see here is that praise to God must be expressed heartily. Worship should never be offered with apathy. Uh, it's not a, a yawn experience. Uh, it should be energetic and fervent in its adoration of God. Dynamic praise. That's what our worship should be like. Spurgeon said, if praise is to be widespread, it must be vocal, exalting sounds that stir the soul and cause sacred contagion of thanksgiving. Is this how we or you approach our time of worship when we're singing? Has, is that in your heart and that is your mind as you, as you lift your voice? John Wesley, great song writer, said, Sing lustily and with good courage. Beware of singing as if you're half dead or half asleep, but lift up your voice with strength. This is the way God's people take the worship of God through singing. Look at Psalm 67. You'll see there again this to the choir director. This particular one is with stringed instruments, and now we're adding a, um, an instrumental section to the choir to help the congregation to sing a psalm, a song. And, and so we see that laid out there in verse 1, first half of the verse, and then verse 3 and 4 I'm going to read. God, be merciful to us and bless us. Let the people praise you. Oh, God, let all the people praise you. Oh, let the nations be glad and sing with joy. Spurgeon said of this psalm, When men know God's way and see his salvation, it brings to their hearts much happiness. Nothing creates gladness so speedily, surely, and abidingly as the salvation of God. He went on to say, what a sweet word it is to sing for joy. Some sing for form, others sing for show, some as duty, others as amusement, but to sing from the heart because of overflowing joy must find a vent. This is to sing indeed. This should be our singing. And when we think about our singing and the nations being glad, we should think about, about missions. This psalm is often called the missionary psalm or the mission psalm because of its emphasis. And I took part here from Piper's great um, writing, The Supremacy of God in Missions. If you've never taken time to look that up on Desiring God and, and, and read that, uh, it's, it's amazing. This is just in part. Um, but let me read it to you. Missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. We come together to worship and to worship him, and we send those out. On the 9th, we're sending Michael and Mamie out because they're people who don't know his name, and they don't worship him. They worship false idols, and that should break our heart. And so we send to the nations the gospel because worship is the ultimate thing. And this is what John is saying here. Worship is. Mission exists because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions. 
because God is ultimate, not man. Worship, therefore, is the goal of missions. It is the goal of missions because in missions we simply aim to bring the nations into a white-hot enjoyment of God. The goal of missions is the gladness of the people and the greatness of God. I love that. The gladness of the people and the greatness of God. We can't export what we don't have in our hearts as we gather as God's people on a Sunday morning. And so thus, when we sing, we must sing for joy, anticipating the day when the nations will join with us in that glad song. Look forward to July 9th. With a glad heart and a tear in an eye. And I'm sure that's going to be true for us as a church and even more individually as a family. There's sacrifice. But worship's ultimate because God's ultimate. There is no sacrifice that he's not worthy of. And this is how we sing. When we sing to him, we're declaring those kind of truths. This sort of wraps it up here in verse 68. Again, for the choir director, it's a psalm of David, and it's a song. Thomas Watson said, in praise we act like angels. You want to act like an angel? You say, oh, she's like a little angel, or he's like a little You want to act like an angel? Then sing with your whole heart and heartily unto the God. That's how we act like an angel. And, and this psalm is declaring that. All people have been created by God for the ultimate purpose of giving him glory. David rejoices that when God arises, the enemies are scattered. You see that in verse 1. David further calls the righteous in verse 3 and 4 to sing. But let the righteous be glad. Let them rejoice before God. Yes, let them rejoice exceedingly. Sing to God. Sing praises to his name. Lift up a song to him who rides through the deserts upon the clouds, whose name is Yahweh. Exalt before him. This is how we sing. Spurgeon said of this kind of singing, to time and to tune, with order and care, celebrate the character and deeds of God, the God of his people. Do it again and again, and let the praise with resolution of heart be all directed to him. Sing not for ostentation, but for devotion, not to be heard of men, but of the Lord himself. Sing not to the congregation, but to God. Extol him who rides on the clouds by the name Yahweh. These four songs inspire us to sing like the angels, sing with all of our heart. And so I pray as we gather this morning here in just a few minutes and we sing, and as we look to the ninth to celebrate missions and we sing, and as we gather together as a class and sing on Sunday morning just that one song, or we gather for a sing-spiration or a hymn-sing, that whenever God's people gather together, we, we would remember that singing is such an important part of worship, but worship we do with our whole heart because he and he alone is worthy. Amen? Amen. God bless you. You are dismissed.